Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons podcast. In this episode, we talk about home automation, as well as early remote controls, bad television jingles, and whether the Flintstones were really prehistoric. The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 91, Home Automation, September 17th, 2015. So Carmen, is your spare time spent creating your own Jarvis personal assistant so that you can be like Elon Musk, I I mean uh, Tony Stark? No, there's too much coding involved in that, and I'm a hardware guy. If someone could do it in TTL, I'd be right there. <laughs> I'll wire wrap it if I have to. Excuse me, there is a message for you. Oh, oh, someone's got a fancy new toy. <laughs> <laughs> so so that's not your own personal assistant? No, no, I don't have Jarvis. No. But I do like the idea of it. Hmm. And, and so what do you think you'd use a Jarvis assistant for if you had one? Mm, I don't know. I'd probably lay in bed a lot longer on the weekends. If you could control my lawnmower, I'd be first in line. <laughs> right. I'll buy an Internet of Things lawnmower to talk to Jarvis. I will do that. <laughs> but it's got to it's gotta all be kept on my own house. I don't need anybody piping my laziness back to Microsoft or Apple or whoever comes up with it. Right. So does that mean you're not using any of the uh... – you know, sort of the automation systems to keep you on schedule, Google Now and that kind of stuff? Uh, No, but I maybe it's just because my schedule is pretty light and I'm not important enough for an assistant. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do see the value in them for, uh, you know, people more busy than I. Well, I, it seems like uh, voice recognition has come so far uh, recently uh, that uh, what seemed impossible 10 years ago seems very po- uh, doable, very possible now. Yeah, yeah, technology is making some some great leaps forward, and not just in uh, you know voice activation and voice software, but in home automation too. Tying it all together, yeah. And and of course, if uh, you're doing home automation, uh, that means you get to get some toys, right? Yes, yes, indeed. And uh, I'm I'm very intrigued by home automation, but I haven't made the haven't made the leap into a system yet. I uh, yeah, I don't know. Still in that uh, period where everyone I know is getting married, so I don't have the upfront cost to just go refit my house <laughs> with all new dimmer switches and light bulbs and everything. Are you still yeah. buying people individual pans and, you know, <laughs> three or four forks? Nope. Just make the check right out to cash. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, one of these days I'll get around to uh, automating my house, but uh, until then, I'll just do research and sit on the sidelines. Ah, wedding-induced poverty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Everyone's doing destination <laughs> weddings and stuff, man. Ooh. Yeah, I mean, they're fun, but I can't go to all of them. Well, so uh, in this episode, we thought we might talk about home automation, uh, since it is an area that uh, ha- we have some interest in, although I don't know if, if uh, any of you really delved very deeply into the home automation world. Well, we already established I'm poor, but I read about it. <laughs> I have. Um, my, uh, my second house, we are about a third of the way through the full automation process. Do you have hmm. a panic room that'll put like steel steel plates down over your windows and stuff if need be? Not that I would tell anyone. 
good call. Good call. <laughs> yes. I haven't gone full prepper yet, Carmen. There, that you would tell either, too. You know, you don't want me making the hike from North Carolina up to uh, Minnesota there, or Minneapolis. Yeah, Minnesota. You'd never make it during the zombie apocalypse. They'd cut you down somewhere <laughs> south of uh, <laughs> Indiana. Well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, I've, maybe I'm digging a tunnel to your house right now as we speak. <laughs> Could work. Chicago did it with neutrons. <laughs> neutrons. No, uh, neutrinos. I don't think you can have a neutrino collider. But I'm not a I'm not a physicsologist. No, no, no. Uh, the Fermi Lab is firing uh, neutrinos um, uh, up to a mine in, I believe, northwestern Minnesota uh, to a neutrino detector. Interesting. And I I believe they're looking at the. Oh man, I think neutrinos change flavors over distance. And so there's some interesting physics associated with uh, the type of neutrinos detected over the distance between Chicago and Minnesota. Cool. Wikipedia would correct me on this, but I am too lazy <laughs> sitting in front of a computer to look it up. That's, that's, that's all the way on the other side of the internet. We can't go there. I believe the mine is in Sudan, Minnesota. Cool. See that at... And that's how Zigbee works. Next home automation topic. <laughs> yes. Home automation, the Minos project. Yes. So uh, anyways, what kind of things are you putting in your home automation? Well, Ed, you know, the obvious thing is lights. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I mean, there's there's been a quiet revolution in this kind of technology over the past, let's say, five, six years. I think – the appearance of the nest was kind of a uh, bellwether for things going forward. You know, high-end design and home automation and what's a better way of saying it? Non-traditional companies entering that space, which I think has been kind of the norm for the past couple of years. Yeah. So Yeah, definitely. Well, I, I don't know. Do, if we're counting thermostats, I have a uh, programmable thermostat, but it's not – Connected to the internet. Alicia White would be very disappointed in me. <laughs> <laughs> I would also think that's the other thing, too, is if if we're talking about big changes, I mean, the ability to automate homes has gone back several decades, as we're probably sure to talk about. But uh, I think the big thing has been internet connectivity and also mobile integration. I mm-hmm. think that's been the big change. Having apps that allow ready access to the elements of home automation and, you know, the controllability and setability of those systems. Yeah, it is pretty cool. I have uh, two friends who kind of automate their homes a little bit and being able to unlock your doors and, you know, change the temperature and lights and everything just from your phone is pretty sweet. I would agree. Well, well, so, so let me, as the, as, 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 as the old guy here sort of go back. So, I remember as a kid reading a, a uh, I think it was a children's book, but you know, I was fascinated by one of the characters in one of the stories had developed a rope and pulley system to make his bed. And I thought, boy, that's neat. You just pull the rope 
and and his bet is automatically made. Now, of course, that's a little di- more difficult to implement in real life than it was in the uh, in the story. Maybe he was a still sleeper, so his covers didn't get all messed up. <laughs> Maybe, but that but as a kid, that seemed to me like fantastic automation. I had no concept of you know anything like computers, and uh, and and then somewhere along the way, we ended up with uh, what was I guess a certain form of technology. We had the early remote controls. Uh, which were devices that when you push the button, it actually physically, manually hit a, a, uh, uh, a resonator that created an ultrasonic frequency, and the TV would change channels based on these ultrasonic tones. Hold on a second. Jeff, are you telling me the first remotes were, were sonic as opposed to IR? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Oh, ultrasonic. wow. <laughs> I think I remember hearing that one time. Yeah. So the first remotes were actually wired, but the first wire, I think the first wireless ones were ultrasonic. So you, you push the button and they had a click. I mean, a definite click. And it, uh, the hammer hit, uh, I don't know exactly what device, you know. Well, it wasn't a click. It was a clunk. A little (laughs) heavier than a click. (laughs) It was, it was, yeah. And, and, but the, then, so that was the funny thing is once you did that, then you listen to the channels change, right? Because it was mechanical tuner. So you'd hit the thing and it'd go, You'd hear the you'd hear the tuner go, clunk, 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 changing one channel at a time. Well, and of course, there were five had, channels. Well, <laughs> well, well, but but everything was VHF, right? UHF. Nobody tuned to UHF, so you had everybody had channels two to thirteen. Now the question is, back in the time we're describing, so you've got channels. Let's say I vaguely remember like one through twelve, thirteen. You know, mm-hmm. was there even a channel one? I only remember channel two. At some point, historically, there must have been, but but I only ever knew channels two through 13. Okay, so when you would hit advance, 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 you know, the clunk, would it actually go to the regional channel that would be next? Or would it go from, like, two to static to, you know, four to five to static uh, so the I don't know every model. I mean, the TVs that I were was aware of, you could program it to go to certain channels. Mm. I, I'm assuming again this was a mechanical implementation, but you would. So if you were on channel two and wanted to go to channel six, you'd be on channel two. Hit the hit the button to go to next, and it would go clunk to three, clunk to four, clunk to five, and finally clunk to six, and you were there. I wonder if our listeners can appreciate the thousands of man hours that went into making that possible prior to basic microcontrollers. Right. And this was, <laughs> this was in the era of vacuum tubes. It was before transistor. Oh, so they, they had to create uh, a system that would hear the tone and respond correctly. And of course, you had to have some filtering capabilities uh, in order to avoid, you know, the dog barking or somebody coughing in the room from setting it off. And so early on, it was rather expensive uh, to, to have such a device. And, and you know that people were calling friends and family to come over and see their wireless remote because they could punch the button and it would change channels for them. Auto- but- automates the entertainment system. <laughs> that was home automation. That's right. Yeah. And the, the wired remote still got stuck in the couch. <laughs> still lost in the couch somehow. You know, at least it had a pointer going to it. That's true. 
wasn't the first form of home automation just slapping your kid in the head and sending him to the TV? <laughs> no, no. I was watching a documentary, actually. Uh, you know, it was about this prehistoric family called the Flintstones, and they'd push a button <laughs> and dinosaurs would go and take out the trash and change the TV channels and, you know, relay their, their voice messages. So it actually Every- dates back to prehistoric times. Every year, that show looks more and more like a bad acid trip. (laughs) (laughs) See, and it's not technically prehistoric if you have a documentary about it. Okay, well, a historic family named the Flintstones, Mr. Pedantic. (laughs) (laughs) Still happened. (laughs) Right. Well, so once we got beyond the interest, uh, the era of the, uh, the ultrasonic remote, then I also remember as a, uh, I don't know, this had to be before my teenage years or somewhere in there, a device called the Clapper. That was not your teenage years. Because <laughs> that, well, when- that was my adolescence that that showed up on TV. Please tell me it's not older than my adolescence. Well, l- let's go look. <laughs> I don't know. Things are, things are older than you think they are. I was surprised Zorn Harwell X10 is. I'm sure they are, but yeah. Wow. Now, to uh, to fill the radio silence here while we look it up, I figured out what happened to Channel 1. This what happened very, to Channel 1? This very high-powered lobby um, of amateur radio operators uh, was able to petition the FCC to dedicate the, the bandwidth that is used for Channel 1 to their uses. Oh. And the FCC didn't renumber the channels over number 2. Interesting. So that's actually hmm. an am- amateur radio band. Okay, yeah. so that that does that jives with what I remember as a kid. All right, and and I have determined from the good folks at Wikipedia that the Clapper was first sold to the public in 1986, which would have been in my mid 20s. So I was beyond my adolescent years. Okay, good, good, because <laughs> that was revolutionary technology when I was growing up, and I don't I don't want my revolutionary technology to turn out to be really old. <laughs> yeah. So for those uh, young whippersnappers in our audience, uh, the clapper was a little circuit that you could, you know, wire up to some lights or, you know, I don't know, maybe anything else you could plug into an outlet. And it would listen for a two claps and it would turn on the lights. And it was amazing. No, the the clapper for our young listeners was a crappy jingle that described the <laughs> product, which had little or no value and was sold to old people everywhere. <laughs> and honestly, it was only marketed by old people. And I mean, and I don't mean to pick on old people, but it was, it, I think it, you are. Well, no, it was, it would honestly follow the, uh, life alert commercials. Right. And these were, these were, these were ads you would only see whenever you were sick in the late eighties, early nineties, because they would, it, pl- it, Yes, but but remember, this is still an era where people didn't – remotes were like a, a a a convenience item. Not everybody had a remote. We were all used to getting up and walking across the room to change the channel on the TV. Oh, this is why and there's no obesity epidemic. You take that <laughs> 10,000 steps a day going back and forth to change the channel. Well, but they only had 13 of them to pick from. True. But someone had to hold the rabbit ears and that's got to be a workout. Yeah, but Jeff, hold on here. Yeah. The clapper was something you could only see in the wild when your elderly grandmother showed you what she bought while watching The Price is Right. <laughs> well, I, no, I understand that. But but if you have arthritis and it's a little tough getting up, aren't you the ideal customer for 
buying such a device? Well, hold on a second. If if you're if you've got arthritis, what's worse, turning on a light switch or clapping? Well, I guess it depends how hard you clap your hands. <laughs> how reliable is the circuit? And maybe you don't have arthritis in your hands. Well, that's a fair point. That is a fair point. But uh, yes, uh, for those who don't know, it was advertised by a very popular, uh, not popular, infamous commercial that was only available in daytime TV and at Nick, uh, what, Nick at Night would also, for whatever reason, show it. Right. Well, uh, during episodes of My Three Sons. Right. Well, we'll, we'll link to the YouTube play uh, video where listeners can go listen to it. But I tell you, you hear it and you can't get it out of your head. Clap on. <laughs> <laughs> clap off, clap on, clap off. The clapper. I think I got it right. Uh, beautifully done. <laughs> and it'll take three weeks for that to get out of my head. <laughs> and hold on a second. That would immediately be, be be fallen by, I've fallen and I can't get up. Nailed it. Right. 100%. <laughs> Seriously, those it's like those commercials would buy like 15 seconds <laughs> Of a 30-second time slot, like advertising time slot, and they would just show up one after the other. I don't know. Maybe they're sold by the same people. Who owns the clapper? I want to see if it's the same people who own uh, Life Alert. (laughs) (laughs) See, Life Alert's still around. Yeah, it's called a cell phone. No, no. Like, I, I saw Life Alert advertisements on TV recently. Was it after? Was it after the jitterbug cell phone commercial? <laughs> Probably. All right. So avoiding any too many tangents here. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just taking me back to my. Youth. Oh, oh no! I'm I'm all about memory lane. But you know, we got uh, we got stockholders. We got to keep happy. <laughs> That's we true. do. Yeah, yeah. We we incorporated since uh, the last episode. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah, we're we're trading on the New York Stock Exchange. But a bare minimum, both Life Alert and the Clapper came out of California. <laughs> so okay. two horrible ideas came out of the same state. <laughs> I, I'm not even going to follow that leap in logic. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. How did you decide what standard of uh, home automation you're going with, Brian? <laughs> how did how did you pick from the uh, you know rat's nest of of options available to you? Um, well, somebody had advised me that, uh, Insteon was the way to go and knowing little, if anything else about home automation, it seemed like a pretty abundant ecosystem. So I just dove in without looking at anything else. So okay. eh, for lack of a, you know, you, you fought the inner engineer in you to pro make a, you know, compliance matrix and everything. No, uh, the pool could have been three inches deep and I dove head first. <laughs> Right. Well, so, but maybe we can back up just a little bit because before Insteon and a lot of the, the other protocols uh, came along, there was one called X10. Do you guys remember the X10 networking mm-hmm. uh, protocol? I, I know a little bit about it. I can't say I have ever used it for anything. It's the one that communicates over the uh, power lines in your house, the electrical exactly. wiring already there. Exactly. Yeah. So in, you know, in the uh, the earlier computer days, I mean, that's... That's how you could communicate. You'd set these things up and they would, you know, the network would communicate through your power line. Yeah. This, I was surprised when we were prepping for the show to see it actually started in the mid-1970s. Yeah. 
did mm-hmm. not realize that. Prior to the invention of switch mode power supply devices, I should note. <laughs> well, even then, you know, you still had all that one, you know, all that electrical wire running through your house and made for nice big antennas and it was noisy. Uh, yeah, power power but lines are not the ideal channel to communicate through. But it's actually, it's not uh, broadcasting, it's actually conductive. Yeah, but you still have to compensate for, you know, all the crap that's on there and anything oh, that yeah. couples in. Oh, absolutely. So, um, yeah, X10 is basically a high-frequency um, carrier, which also rides on top of your 60 hertz signal. Um, so, but okay, so I, my understanding of this is limited, but what I thought happened was that you're looking at the crossings of your signal, and so it's transmitting one bit every time you you uh, cross the zero on your 60 hertz. So uh, how did they get 120? What are they doing to get 120 kilohertz on there? Uh, I believe it's some sort of a chirp, but um, that's a fair point. And mind you, so, uh, I now, from my background at Insteon, and I think we should add a big asterisk to this entire episode, which is I am as... I think the only person on this episode that's played with Insteon and communication over power lines. Um, I am not a hundred percent positive exactly how Insteon's products work or how they implement X10, X10 related communication. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, based on my experience, I, I'll, I'll try to throw some, background on this but it may be entirely wrong so you get a one millisecond burst of a 120 kilohertz signal okay so i had so i had read somewhere that that you were getting just a transmission of one bit at each zero crossing which is something that's a pretty slow baud rate yeah probably but uh, that'd be like 60 baud yeah that's what i'm thinking (laughs) But, I, I'm with a civil engineer on this one, but not, not a whole lot of communication is required to turn a particular light, uh, like a light on. So, a lot of a lot of the early technology was related to things that you would plug into 60 hertz. Yeah. So, yeah, looking yes. at this list of X10 commands here, it looks like it's like four bits for each command. So, exactly. So, so you're, I mean, the you're, and this is also prior to any of our modern electronics. So interesting things that you might want to communicate with. Uh, so you're only trying to communicate with, you know, open relay, closed relay. Maybe there's a dozen relays, that kind of stuff. Okay. I've got a, a question and maybe you covered it and I missed it. So can that go over, um, phases isn't the right word, but do you have to make sure you're on the right? Um, no, you've hit circuit. the nail on the head and this was a, huge pain in the butt with respect to my experience with Insteon. And mind you, I've heard great things about Insteon, and I don't mean to deride their product. I know people who have wired their entire houses with it. I I, I do not want to make this a review of their product. Um, But so typically a standard uh, U.S. house, I don't know how Europe is wired, um, will have a 240-volt Oh, God, don't get this wrong, Brian. Split phase system. There's a term for it, which is 
which is 240 volts off the pole. And so you get 240 volts separated by 90 degrees. Uh, I'm an electrical engineer, and this is appalling. I don't know this. With a neutral return line back to the pole. And so your house has two separate 120 volt lines uh, relative to neutral. And, uh, you know, those will form two separate 120 volt circuits. And if you ever need a 240 volt line relative to, you know, for like a washer, Range, dryer, dryer. Ex- yeah, exactly, Adam. Air conditioner. They'll use the two separate phases. So the issue is you put your communication bus on 120 volt line because you plug it into an outlet. How do you actually get communications to the other side? You're only communicating with, let's just say, half the outlets in the house, assuming that everything was split 50-50. Unless you run on your ground or your neutral, which case then you're facing the fact that everything goes to a central ground and all of a sudden you got to have enough power to come back on your ground. Well, you can't because they're all tied either at the breaker box or at the pole. You can't you can't use the neutral to communicate. Yeah, because they all need to be tied at the at the breaker box. Exactly. Or a single point. Oh God, is that true? Oh, Adam, <laughs> why did you have to say that? Um, it's it is true. I it, believe that it's so. All U.S. power is just through wires. Three wires off the pole. Residential. Yep. Yep. Yeah, no, it's it's your uh, your two hots and your neutral coming off the pole. It gets tied to a ground, yep. uh, usually at the meter. Yeah. Or near the meter or at your breaker box or, you know, whatever. And then once once it goes out to distribution in the house, you have uh, three wires, your hot, neutral, and ground. And yep. neutral is just basically a current carrying ground. Yep. Neutral and ground get tied at the box. Yep. So with X10, do you have uh, like a a central hub like some of these other systems would have? Absolutely. Well, okay, I shouldn't say X10. Again, we're jumping back to Insteon because... Sorry, I'm using them interchangeably here. Well, and that's... I I know in our show outline, Insteon is kind of a bullet point unto itself, but Insteon is probably the only popular commercially available system that's communicating over AC systems mm-hmm. i'm sure there are other ones but it's the one that based on my research makes up the bulk of those systems everything else is using wireless which we'll get to um and instant products i believe accept x10 communication but they also have their own pro- i shouldn't say proprietary because you can get a pdf uh, regarding their standard but they're one of the only products that's using the house's AC network to distribute communication. And they both have that issue, which is, I think, the what you were getting back to. So if if you need to jump phases, so from 120-volt lead to the other as it comes off the pole, you actually have to have an RF link between the two. Hmm. Interesting. Or at least, I shouldn't say you have to. That's one common way to solve that problem. So one of the things I remember was the electrical companies or the electric companies were talking about they were going to get into the internet business uh, providing internet service across the power lines. Yeah. Do you guys know anything about that? I do. (laughs) I know that the ham crowd basically put the kibosh on that because it turned most high-tension lines into uh, 
big broadband emitters. <laughs> <laughs> but also, okay. I mean, so if you that it, that idea was thrown around a lot, I'd say in the early two thousands, as we were mm-hmm. looking at jumping off of uh, dial up connections to um, higher bandwidth, situ- uh, higher bandwidth providers. Right. Power lines could never compete with coax cable. You know, if something is built as an RF, you know, waveguide, there's no way you're going to make a power line compete with that. And the only, right. I think the only prayer it has was to, uh, it was so ubiquitous that it might be cheap enough that people were willing to accept lower bandwidth at a significantly reduced price. Well, bandwidth got so high relative to what people were using and before YouTube. I know some of our listeners may not remember life before YouTube. <laughs> um, but pretty quickly, cable killed that. It just it didn't work. Well, and uh, I mean, it was a potential competitor to DSL in the rural remote areas where cable is not available. What do you think the chances are that our bulk of our listeners even know what DSL is? Yeah. Don't know. 50%, about 46% are from outside of the United States. <laughs> Who have better internet than us? Yeah. They all have better internet than us. That's right. That's right. So we're, we'll talk in when we get into wireless. We'll talk a little bit about security. I'm I'm just trying to think. Uh, so what's the leakage on the stuff going out across the uh, X10? If you're if you're clicking the stuff across the power lines, does it stop at your pole, or does does somebody next door are they able to you know? pick up on these clicks that are going on in your system. Well, uh, the attenuation is pretty quick. I forget the inductance of an inch of copper. That's not so much the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, in modern, con- I mean, so we're talking X10 and, you know, any other power, uh, sorry, communication over power line protocols. Mm-hmm. The bigger issue becomes uh, you've got high frequency carriers going over these power lines, which is great when you've got... Uh, um, nothing but old linear power supplies running huge cathode ray tube TVs and a few switches on the line. Mm-hmm. But as the power systems in our house have become dominated by um, switch one power supplies, which have immense amounts of filtering at high frequency, you start to run into issues. And I, I know that Insteon deals with those so that, you know, you can deploy an Insteon system and have no issues. But I know people who have deployed those systems and basically say, don't put any, say, you know, iPhone chargers or cell phone chargers near your Insteon boxes. Because the built-in filtering on those things to make them CE and UL compliant for conducted emissions will basically attenuate the, uh, they're not X10, but Insteon signals. Okay. Um, Makes sense. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think in the long run, sending data over power lines is a, probably a dead technology. But but for a while, it was the only technology we had. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> I mean, it's still holding on, but it's... It's probably not going to compete with, you know, say, Bluetooth, low, ener- low energy, Zigbee, or Z-Wave. Yeah. Well, and so I'll be honest. I mean, I look back at a time when um, 
you know, we talked, we joked last week about the the dial-up modem, but but when that was the technology, the thought that, and that was wired technology, right? The thought that someday we'd be passing, you know, hundreds of megabytes or even gigabytes of information easily wirelessly across the house, I, I would have never thought it possible. I would I would thought would you know we'd be all irradiated from all the radiation it would take to pass that information that quick from one side of the house to the other, and, and yet here we are. Oh, uh, come on, Jeff. There, RF information, RF photons won't do any biological damage to your body. Th- that's fine. I'm not arguing that point. I just didn't see how you would crank up, you know, as at that point, it was so hard to get, get this radio transmission with any speed that I figured you'd just have just an incredible amount of power in order to, uh, to make all this happen. And, and, uh, uh, at least I would, I would seem to recall s- stories about people who were sitting in front of broadcasting antennas and uh, having bad cancers occur to them as a result. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, um, hot button issue for me. That's that's probably apocryphal and false. But, the, I mean, <laughs> it, the, from an engineering perspective, the uh, the bigger issue is trying to get regulatory compliance on a long range and you know off the shelf uh, RF system mm-hmm. um, you know it's still very expensive to integrate into commercial products say like a GSM or some sort of a cellular say cellular wireless device to the point that I know somebody who's you know family business for a long time was making you know, well into the cell cell phone era was uh, their family business was making um, dial-up systems for ATMs. You know, hmm. uh, for a long time, I couldn't believe the that it was successful and that those were such high margin devices, largely because nobody was making them anymore. But it was still very expensive to launch ATM systems that had, you know, a simple cell phone in them such that they could call the bank. Mm-hmm. Um, that's long past. I I think it's long past, and also in the home, the RF systems have, you know, it's easy to buy a module that has all the licensing certification necessary to just you know solder it into your board. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, I agree with you, but it's it's amazing how quickly we've passed into the domain where it's, or the situation where it's so easy to integrate that stuff. Absolutely. Plus I think there's a certain amount of the bandwagon of it's wireless. Yes. This is the solution to everything. Um, Cause it is so easy. Oh yeah. I mean, well, if it, it, when you own a house running wires all over the place is a real pain in the butt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, so do you think people have any idea how many different technologies are competing to be the wireless technology in the house? I don't even think I know what all the technologies that are competing to be the wireless technology in the house. I, I as we started preparing for this episode and I started looking things up, I, I was surprised at, at how many people are trying to get it, and people are jumping in even now. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, right. I, I want to say that uh, didn't Microchip just launch a new wireless standard? They may have. For home automation or just in general? In general, but I, I believe it would be applicable for home automation. 
I don't know. It probably doesn't help that we're how many years into this and there's no clear front runner. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap. Yeah, well, so the one area that does seem to have been established is Wi-Fi. You know, the the uh, the standard eight hundred two eleven. You know, whatever. And and that works great, but that's sort of limited in that it takes a lot of power. You you can broadcast as we've been talking about. You can uh, broadcast a good distance, and you can you can transmit a lot of information very quickly. But the downside is it consumes a lot of power, and so you have to usually any type of uh, Wi-Fi device has to be plugged into an outlet, so it's it doesn't lend itself very well to uh, to being a battery powered device. It also has a lot of um, overhead related to the stack on the device side. It, it's not a, a trivial thing to communicate via Wi-Fi because you're typically communicating via Ethernet. Well, it's become a lot easier. There's a, there's a ton of modules out there that are available such that you can get, say, SPI or UART interface, and and they have a module that's already already has the appropriate regulatory compliance and you can just, you know, solder it on your board and ship your product. But it's power ends up being the big issue. As somebody who has a deployed wireless system, it's, you know, having to go around every couple of weeks and replace the batteries is a big issue. And so, so this is a standard maintenance procedure for you? Not yet, but it's it would be if I had used Wi-Fi. Oh, okay. I mean, or I should say that's an assumption. Um, I'm primarily Zigbee and Z-Wave at this point, uh, but historically the Wi-Fi modules have been significantly higher power consumption but significantly higher bandwidth. Right. How was the one they mentioned the, on the app hour the, all, all the time? Uh uh, is it the Something, electric imp? Yeah. Oh, imp. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, people, most people are familiar with Wi-Fi, and the, another technology they're usually familiar with is uh, Bluetooth, because a lot of us use Bluetooth to connect our, you know, our phones to a speaker, or uh, uh, you know, c- connect one device to another, pass information or audio via Bluetooth. But again. One of the problems with standard Bluetooth is that it is power hungry. Um, it's power hungry. And so the Bluetooth people, not wanting to let this opportunity go by, uh, came out with an approach called, uh, I think it was originally Bluetooth LE for low energy and is now sometimes called Bluetooth Smart. I haven't actually seen is, the Smart before, but I can't really say I'm up on it too much. Okay. Uh, but uh, the idea is that. It's it's a version of Bluetooth that takes less energy, less power, so you could have battery uh, battery powered devices. Uh, so, in, but in in reading up on this, I'd be interested in, in your thoughts. Uh, Bluetooth traditionally is a a one to one communication, right? You you link your say your phone to a speaker, and it's communication back and forth between the phone and the speaker, and it's not a networking. You know, it's it's sort of peer to peer. Uh, but in response to this, since the Bluetooth people don't want to be left out, they've recently introduced a version that apparently has like a mesh network capability so that it also has networking. Are you, are you familiar with this, this, uh, sort of change in direction with Bluetooth? Learn something new every day. (laughs) (laughs) 
I know that Bluetooth low, uh, low energy exists, but unfortunately not had much of a chance to interact with it. Yeah. And I really can't even begin to give you an effective comparison between Zigbee and Z-Wave. <laughs> okay. Well, so those are the other two uh, sort of major players, I suppose, in, in the low power region. The I think uh, – so there's Insteon, which which you mentioned before, but additionally there's Bluetooth, uh, low energy, Zigbee, and Z-Wave. They both begin with Zs and sound sort of familiar. Can I uh, – sorry, just to before we jump off Bluetooth here. Sure. Um, Go ahead. One of the uh, quote-unquote drawbacks of Bluetooth uh, would be the range issue. You know, on this, this Bluetooth uh, – smart or bluetooth low energy however you want to say you know the theoretical max is greater than 100 meters but i mean unless you have some kind of central hub system that's then connected to the internet you know you're not going to be running your uh your bluetooth devices you know when you're up the street you know and at the grocery store and you go oh no i left the garage door open no you can't just flick a button easily there needs to be another step in there mm. yeah but but isn't that the purpose of of a hub that's true, I mean, and I guess, you, I guess if, a if hub is pretty if, common, but, you know, if you were someone who was trying to do it piece mentally, um, you know, you could get a Wi-Fi-enabled, whatchamacallit, and just talk to that, you know? Yeah, but but all these but all these systems have to be fairly low energy because otherwise when you signal something, you're, you know... <laughs> That's true. Are you going to be interfering with the people next door? I mean, uh, uh, so, you know, both Zigbee and, and Z-Wave have ranges that are limited to you know, the 10 to 30 meter range. That's not exactly going across the city. True, true. Yeah, and I guess, you know, you wouldn't want too much of a range because you don't want to interfere with your neighbors or have your neighbors interfere with you either. So mm-hmm. I stand corrected on that one. Well, I don't I don't, I don't know as you're corrected. I'm just, you know, so these things get tied together in various ways trying to take advantage. So there's no reason, if you're bringing in internet information, you want to bring that in over, over the you know, over Wi-Fi or a router or something. Yeah. But but then you get it to a hub and the hub can now start issuing commands over Bluetooth, low energy or Zigbee, whatever. Yeah, that's a good point. I guess that's reinventing the wheel here. <laughs> well, I mean, and it it may behoove us to implement, uh, to introduce the idea of a hub as we discuss okay. this, yes. which is you have, you have some sort of a device for your home that would communicate to these disparate protocols based on web traffic. I guess it'd be called web traffic. So you, you'd use your phone or some sort of an internet, de- uh, you know, uh, uh, this thing called a, a browser on a desktop. Well, no, I mean, there's, a, I mean, <laughs> there's other options beyond that, which would be like, say Comcast has a product, I believe called, you know, their Comcast home. Uh, it's been, widely uh, advertised where you have a tablet type device that um, talk uses a, I believe Z wave hub to talk to the various systems inside of your house that you can then add on. And uh, I believe if you leave the house and you use the app, like you've seen using the commercials, you're using, you know, IP protocol to communicate to your hub, which is then sending information over Z-Wave to the individual pieces in your house that have specific functionalities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's there's plenty of other products that, that offer this. I don't mean to highlight Comcast, so 
you know, Samsung smart things offers this functionality, um, wink, um, uh, what's the home Depot one? Um, I, I can't tell you off the top of my head. Staples had one for a while too. I don't know if it was a Staples brand. I think it was. What? Yeah, there was like a Staples home automation hub that you could get for a while. My buddy's got one. Does he like it? Yeah, I it had one specific feature that he needed, and that's what you know sold him on it. But he's he's been happy with it so far. I believe Wink is the home automation from. Uh, Home Depot. There's other pla- there's other partners with this post, uh, associated with that. Um, and actually, that's something you see largely with these hubs. You see kind of networks of uh, suppliers and de- and uh, device support. So, Home Depot, I believe, is the originator of, originator of Wink, and I believe Lutron. And Philips are also big players in it, but um, so you have people who make the products and people who make the hubs, and the interoperability between those two are kind of what just defines the ecosystem. So you'll end up making trade-offs based on who you decide to use as a hub and a uh, service provider as to what kind of products you can actually integrate to it, but. Getting back to the point of the hub, you know, you take commands from your cell phone and turn it into actions on your local network and your Zigbee Z-Wave or Bluetooth uh, low energy market, uh, network. Right. So the, the devices, uh, the hubs can speak several different language, languages. That is, they can transmit in Z-Wave protocol, which is... Uh, lower frequency, but all, uses less power. Uh, Zigbee, uh, which is slightly higher frequency, a little more power. Bluetooth, whatever. So, so the hubs can transmit various languages, and not all of them transmit in all languages. So you have to pick carefully which, you know, which you've got. But my question is the sensors. You know, the light bulbs and the power outlets and all that stuff. Is each one of them only receive a certain uh, protocol? Or are there are there light bulbs and power outlets, you know, adapters that can take Zigbee or Z-Wave or Bluetooth? I'm I'm pretty sure it's all specific. Yeah, uh, I bet it would be how much you want to pay. Uh, you know, if you wanted one that could do three or four different protocols, it's probably more expensive than just the Zigbee light bulb or whatever. I yeah, I would think that it would probably not be cost effective. It'd be cheap. It would be more cost efficient to make a Zigbee. If you're going to have multiple ones, make a Zigbee light bulb, a Z-Wave light bulb, a Bluetooth light bulb, Mm -hmm. and make them three separate devices. Exactly. And and, I mean, uh, to be more specific, Z-Wave uses the bandwidth that were typically used in uh, like cordless phones in the U.S., Mm -hmm. the 900 megahertz bandwidth. bandwidth. Um, And I said Z-Wave, right? Okay, so Zigbee uses 2.4 gigahertz like everything else. Right, um, which can be problematic, um, depending upon which Wi-Fi standard you have, um, which also operates at two point four gigahertz. So, while the devices are typically, you know, unibandwidth, uh, the de- uh, the hubs typically support multiple bandwidths, mm-hmm. or at least you know the ones that you would buy typically support multiple bandwidths. 
um, yeah. like Samsung Smart Things, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so I, I have no idea. If someone wants to jump into this, what are they looking at? What, what does it cost to get a hub? What does it cost to buy a, you know, connected light bulb? Uh, just going off the Amazon prices here, you know, for the Wink system, um, you know, the hub itself is only 45, 60, 50 bucks. Uh, but it gets more complicated once you start looking at everything else. You know, mm -hmm. light bulbs are 15 bucks, 20 bucks a piece. Um, are so, but are those LED bulbs? I mean, yeah. you, you, I, I was just looking at the hardware store yesterday and they were selling these LED bulbs for like eight bucks. So. Yeah, these are LED bulbs. I think that was Philips or GE. I saw make some. Uh, now, is it the the are the GE um, light bulbs? Are they actual light bulbs or are they switches? I'm uh, pretty sure it was an actual light bulb. Let me see if I can find that link here real quick. Well, I'm I'm looking right here to uh, uh, describes a GE Link wireless A19 smart connected LED light bulb, soft oh, wow. white, 60 watt equivalent for $14.97 here in the U.S. Yeah, Interesting because, um, and, and that may be new because historically Philips has dominated the light bulb market with their Hue product. Mm -hmm. And I have quite a, uh, quite a few GE switches. Um, where it, it looks like a traditional light switch. Uh, and Insteon also has a very similar product line where it looks like a traditional light switch and it acts like a traditional light switch, but you can also engage it from your home automation network. Right. Whereas the Philips Hue light bulb is just a standard light bulb that, you know, you turn, you know, you turn it on and you can also access it over your home automation network. Right. Yeah. So this, this sounds like the kind of thing, you know, for cost, it's expensive as you want it to be. You know, you maybe you wouldn't <laughs> roll out your whole house at once. You would do the the kitchen, your bedroom, and the you know the living room or something to start with the the three main rooms of your house, and then branch off to bathroom lights and spotlights and hall lights and everything. Yeah, you're 100 percent right. Uh, so per perhaps I'm just too much of a luddite, but uh, currently. I can stand up and I can walk over to the wall and I can turn on the light. And I have these remote controls that, that control a lot of my other electronic devices. What is it that you're doing or want to do with, uh, with this home automation system? Well, that's pure geekery. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> while, I come, while I come up with very exotic, practical um, explanations of what I'm doing for my wife, um, yes. it is pure unadulterated geekery. <laughs> yes, and, you know if you, if you integrate a home security system, you know locks and alarms and whatever. You know you can set the alarm when you're away. If you know you don't want to hand out a, a spare key to somebody, you can just tell them to text you when they're at their house, and you can turn off the alarm and the locks. And you know when your your motion sensors indicate they've gone, you just turn it all back on. So, uh, and I'll identify that I've used. Um, or I should say use, settled upon the Samsung SmartThings uh, product line for my house. Um, one thing I find I use it for all the time is uh, uh, temperature measurement. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these Samsung native products, uh, native products, uh, stuff they offer on their, on their online stores for SmartThings, 
are multi-sensors. So you'll have a door sensor that tells you if the door is open, closed, but it also has a temperature sensor. Motion sensor that has, you know, tells you if there's motion can do various things, but also tells you what the um, humidity, temperature, and, you know, light is in that particular location. So those, what, what that allows you to do is, at least in my case, you know, I have a pretty substantial temperature gradient in my house. And uh, I'm always worried about if my daughter who's sleeping in the basement is getting too cold. So I'll, I first thing, I have an alarm set. If the temperature um, around her room gets too cold, it'll actually wake me up and tell me to adjust the temperature. Hmm. Um, it's also the most common thing I look up. You know, I want to see what that temperature gradient is and adjust my thermostat accordingly. You know, which ultimately means either adjusting the temperature or adjusting how the fans are working. Um, you can also do things like if motion is triggered in one particular area, instead of buying a dedicated, you know, motion light, which is pretty typical in the U.S. to have, you know, a security light, which once motion is detected will, will uh, turn on, you know, a series of very powerful floodlights you can just set up a individual sensor in a particular area and if motion is detected in that area turn on these switches um mm -hmm. so those are the kinds of things i use it for so how much of a problem are just normal computer glitches because you know my experience has been that although computers keep getting better from time to time you know you still get the occasional blue screen of death yeah, you you still occasionally get you know my my rare occasions doesn't happen very often, but every once in a while my phone freezes up. You know it happens maybe once a year, but it happens. Uh, and I'm not I'm not ready to turn the security of my house over to some system that that uh, glitches open and and let somebody in the front door. Uh, I know they're, they're they've got means of working around this, but uh, no, but, but how 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 big a problem is that? But Jeff, what do you mean by the security of your house? Well, I mean, uh, Carmen was talking earlier about having the having the lock, you know, connected to this this network. Okay, so I've heard a fair amount of criticism regarding the companies that offer locks. Mm -hmm. um, we'll see. That would be uh, oh, Schlag, and I forget who the other companies are, but there's a number of standard u.s companies that offer you know that would also offer dumb deadbolts and and uh other entry technologies the criticism has been that they aren't doing enough to lock down their systems mm -hmm. um and that they have potential vulnerabilities either, either over zigbee or z-wave and so i haven't gone that route and based on whatever read, i can't imagine that you would want to Okay. Um, you'd probably want to do your own reading that on that, but you know, beyond that, you're not talking security. You're talking inconvenience and uh, annoyance. You know, I've I've heard plenty of stories of people using their smart things to, uh, you know, trigger sounds when they walk into a room or, you know, when they when somebody arrives home, they want certain things to happen. Like you know, if it's night, if it's night and I arrive within a block of my house, turn on the lights. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's simple stuff like that. And, you know, things that can go wrong would be, A, the lights don't turn on, or B, the lights turn on at the wrong time. So it's it's pretty low-risk stuff, you know. Right. You're not opening it up to the outside world. You know, I haven't added uh, thermostat functionality, at least remote thermostat functionality to my system. And, you know, I know people who have owned uh, the Nest system and didn't have it hooked up to home automation and woke up one morning and their house was at 90 degrees because the Nest system had a bug in it and it basically you know, defaulted the heat to on in the middle mm-hmm. of the night and left the heat on the entire night. Right. So you can have those issues without home automation. It just gets into commercial people, commercial and I would say telecommunications companies getting into areas that have been typically dominated by very conservative, you know, Honeywell-esque companies. Mm-hmm. So it's, I mean, you can get yourself in trouble, but you also have to choose to get yourself in trouble at a certain degree. Mm-hmm. At least in my experience. Sure. Here you go, Jeff. I found a $90 light bulb. <laughs> wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. Does it make you coffee? What it kind does of light not, bulb, no. Though? It is the Lifex original A21 Wi-Fi smart LED light bulb, multicolor, adjustable, dimmable, no hub required, gunmetal gray. How many watts? It's, how the, many gunmetal, watts it's the gunmetal gray that gets you every time. Uh, <laughs> consumes 17 watts at a brightness of just over 1,000 lumens, comparable to a 75-watt light bulb. It's not even all that bright of a light. Keep in mind, a Philips Hue system will cost you... 200 bucks or four lights and a hub. Mm-hmm. Well, this is a do-it-all light bulb here. <laughs> Only yeah. $90. So, it, oh, there's also another um, issue here, which is, again, Samsung SmartThings is one particular example. Uh, their first-generation hub, all the actual computation was up in the cloud. So if you lost internet connection, any of the cool things that you set up didn't work. Right. And uh, part of their second generation hub, which I haven't received, you know, I haven't even pre-ordered and hasn't, I believe, been offered to the public, is to push a lot of that functionality down to the local device. Okay. You know, per the discussion we were having earlier about infinite bandwidth. Right. And everything being in the cloud. Got these processors and whatever that are better than ever, and all we want to do is pipe shit to the cloud. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's very true. Yeah. I, I guess if you're controlling it from a hub, you don't really care about battery life because it's supposed to be the big central control center that's going to be plugged in. So as long as you have power, it should be able to control your home, whether or not the internet's up. You know, and at a certain level... This is the future. I hate to say that, but <laughs> the cost curve has been pretty substantial on adding the stuff to your house. And it you keep seeing more and more integration with smart devices. And if you look at the acquisition moves, you know, uh, Samsung buying smart things and, you know, the rollouts like Apple rolling out uh, their home kit, which I'm not quite sure exactly what it does. Um, 
even as an Apple user, I have no clue what HomeKit does. Um, I would imagine, given the infrastructure that's been rolling out, this is not going away, and it's going to become more and more common. Yeah, you'll probably start seeing it in real estate listings, like smart home, you know, accessible or capable or whatever. But then again, if you have branding like, you know, Amazon this, Apple that, will that become a big, ooh, I would have bought this house, but uh, I have an iPhone. Mm. <laughs> no, at least for the immediate future, if you're buying $90 light bulbs, I'm taking those with me when I move. <laughs> <laughs> So actually, that's another big thing too. Is you know, you have a company like Insteon, which has quasi proprietary, at least in my experience, quasi proprietary uh, uh, systems, and then you have a lot of Zigbee and Z-Wave as the primary devices in for home automation. It looks like a lot of the hubs allow you to swap the hub out and retain your devices. As long as they're Zigbee Z-Wave type devices. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's good at least. Oh, I should say, as long as they're Zigbee Z-Wave, de- Z-Wave devices and they support those devices. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, obviously you need you couldn't replace a Zigbee hub with a non-Zigbee hub and expect it to still work. Oh, it's more it's more to the point of, uh, let's say, a Zigbee light switch, you know. I don't know, and there could be a standard protocol associated with, you know, light switch, light switch one on the network, you know, mm-hmm. light switch two in the network. What do those particular devices look like in the network um, versus a GE light switch or a Philips Hue light bulb? I get the impression based on the way devices have been rolled into the smart things system that everyone has their own way of doing that such that even if you add a new hub and it supports z-wave and zigbee and well i've got those devices it doesn't necessarily mean that they support your devices Mm -hmm. yeah we're still in that uh infancy stage where you have to do your research you can't just uh you know plug and play and jump on real fast yes and so <clears throat> are we coming to the point or as we go down the road, you know, 10 years from now, will a new home be built, wired in with every outlet being connected to some sort of, you know, you know, Internet of Things locally? Wired in wirelessly. Well, well, I, you can't – I don't think you'll be able to transmit power wirelessly. But, you know, would if you have – I don't know how many outlets are in a house, 100 outlets – in, in a home or 80 outlets in a home, would they all be connected to this network? Possibly. Um, I think there'd have to be more work done to define a standard, but I couldn't see why you wouldn't. The price have to come down a bit, I'm assuming. Yeah, I, I don't know. But so I look back and, and I don't know, 10 years ago, everybody was wiring their house with Cat6 cable because everything had to be connected to the internet. <laughs> was was that a foolish expenditure of money and time? Not in my eyes. I'd love to wire my house with Cat Six if it wasn't such a pain <laughs> in the ass. <laughs> Damn Southern Clay, man! I have no basement to route the the cables around. It, it rolls back to something I talked about last week. You know, sometimes it just has to work, and wires just work. Uh, that's true. But then, so do, so does a a Honeywell thermostat. 
but people are still going out and spending hundreds of dollars for a Nest thermostat. So. Well, I guess, you know, a choice between Wi-Fi versus Cat 6. I'm going to take the Cat 6 every single day. Okay. If, Unless you have to wire it yourself. <laughs> <laughs> as, somebody, as somebody who's done that, I mean, you know, uh, while it's very easy mm-hmm. to make the terminations, it's, man, it's a pain in the butt to actually fish wire through any sort of a – you know, studded wall through multiple levels. The hardest part of wiring is getting the wire where it needs to be. Exactly. Yep. I don't know. I'm actually kind of appalled that we're still talking about either Zigbee or Z-Wave. I mean, not that I can decide between the two, but it it's it's really strange that there are still multiple standards. That worries me about... The ability to roll out products. I don't think that products should be competing based on the communication type. They should be competing based on uh, the functionality that they offer. Yeah, but didn't we sort of have different, you know, competing VCR standards and we were waiting to find out whether, uh, you know, Betamask, Betamax would win the uh, day and it didn't? Yeah, yeah but, and maybe the, maybe the timeline is only compressed in my memory, but it seemed like Betamax <laughs> lost that quickly and lost it hard. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But I mean, 10 years ago, you know, you didn't have your phone in your pocket that could, you know, control your house from the road. This is all still pretty new. So yeah, Zigbee might be that old and same with Z-Wave, but it's a very much more niche market that would try to do all that stuff. Yeah, but I thought, you know, it, it's a niche market going back into the late 90s. I, I remember a, a ton of news stories about Bill Gates's house being automated back in the late 90s. And mm-hmm. I actually can't imagine him using anything other than off-the-shelf products and simply adding a PC interface and running it off of Windows 98. Or ninety five or whatever he was using at the time, but it, and do you think and do you think he's kicking himself now, going, geez, so old technology. Now I have to rewire the entire house. Well, <laughs> but but that's the point. I mean, is it is it was it wired? Was it wireless? I gotta imagine some of it was wireless, and you know something would they would have chosen a standard. Um, you know, go ahead, Adam. Well, I was going to say also, um, let's not forget that the cost is probably not that big of an issue. And that is a major issue in, in current, uh, the current economics of, of home automation for the average engineer. Um, just based on what I know engineering salaries are. Uh, I don't have a million dollars to spend on automating my house. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I did. And if somebody has a million dollars to give me to automate my house, great. <laughs> But uh, if you have a million dollars to automate your house, you'd probably live in a twelve million dollar house. Well, I'd also build a house <laughs> with that million dollars. But that's exactly, <laughs> you'd, you'd pay people to switch your lights on and off. <laughs> exactly. Um, so you know, right. back when Bill Gates was doing that, you know he he had those opportunities available. And well, I, the only reason I brought that up wasn't to say you know. Why hasn't Bill Gates solved this? It's and, no. and why why haven't the rich people solved this? It's you know the notion of doing this has been around for a long time. Why do we have competing standards at this point? Why does choosing a hub limit you from various products that are out on the market? 
why isn't a light switch or a temperature switch, a temperature sensor just a standard interface? And, you know, I offer my Samsung temperature sensor, which looks identical to my General Electric temper- temperature sensor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, but, but as we talked about before, Zigbee and Z-Wave are, are different technologies. And so oh, understood. There's, a, there, there's a difference in range. There's a difference in power consumption. And for every for every device manufacturer, this is a trade-off. What what are they willing to spend in in uh, power consumption? What are they looking for in range? How does it make you know uh, affect the buying decision? Uh, having having somebody come through and say you must use this technology, I, I don't think any of us as as designers would be happy with that uh, approach. Well, I'll also say that you know as a novice home automation uh, user, mm-hmm. Zigbee and Z-Wave are interchangeable. They may not be interchangeable from power consumption, but, you know, the devices that are inside my house all use roughly the same battery. And if you look at the traffic on the network, the update rates are crazy different between all the devices that are on the network. Right. So for me, as somebody who's aware of other networking systems, I can't believe that they're actually competing like... If I was to, if I was designing a sensor, it would be either Zigbee or Z-Wave, and I can't imagine that I would be conflicted between my choice. Okay. Well, so you know, I these groups, these alliances that that are behind the various ones, uh, keep pushing you know new features to come out. I see that Zigbee uh, recently introduced a new protocol, Zigbee three point uh, because they had siloed standards. That is, there was a Zigbee for home automation and there was a Zigbee for security. And there's, I can't remember what all, but they had like four or five or six different Zigbee standards. And so they were bringing them all together under the 3.0 protocol. Um, and my thought is that, you know, as the various groups do this, aren't they going to start moving towards each other? Don't we, ha- don't we have uh, them all collide and, and eventually, you know, somebody, you know, the, the alliances agree to join and, you know, at some point, don't these type of compromises get made? No, one loses historically, right? <laughs> no, I, no, I mean, but be honest, historically one loses. Well, yes, yeah. one loses because they, they, they get to the point where it doesn't, you know, they can, they can't make the changes quickly enough. Uh, and, and, so members jump ship. If if one if one stands out above the other, then then the alliance members will jump ship. Right? They'll quit. Will quit making to that standard. Mm-hmm. But they appear to be pretty closely matched. I mean, if they're both, I mean, if we can't as novices, I mean, because we as novices can point to, um, you know, Betamax versus VHS and HD DVD versus Blu-ray and say, well, there's clear winners. There's clearly not a clear winner with respect to these two different standards. Right. Um, At least not yet. Yeah. But uh, I guess maybe that's, that's the crux of it. I mean, you would think that, well, I've got this toolkit of different options, you know, and as somebody who's deploying a home automation network you'd be really conscious about i want to use z-wave here and zigbee there it honestly has never even crossed my mind right i don't even see a whole lot of discussions outside of say the audiophile 
crew as to which one is superior. I'm a little confused by audiophile. I, neither one of those networks is going to carry information fast enough to do audio. Or is no, it? I mean people who simply debate things for – oh, so people who debate things well outside of their rational technical basis. <laughs> okay. You know. <laughs> right. It's – I'm sure you can find forum discussions about Z-Wave and Zigbee that – quickly devolve well beyond what would be considered a reasonable technical discussion. I'm sure in some communities, Zigbee and Z-Wave are Hitler for two different reasons. Right. Well, so I recently saw that uh, the Amazon Echo, which is their little, you know, looks like a Pringle can that uh, takes voice commands, was was able to hook up to, I think it was the, the SmartThings protocol, so do you think, Brian, that you'd be more likely to uh, to do even more home automation uh, if you were able to just speak to your Pringle can and, and have it turn things on and off in your house? I forget. Prior to this episode, did I mention that I have an Amazon Echo? No. Yes, I have one. Oh, okay. And I have Samsung SmartThings. And for whatever reason, I have not bothered to connect them up. <laughs> <laughs> so... I actually think it's of limited use. And this was, uh, I hate to push to other podcasts. There's a really great discussion about this on Tested, um, about how people have, I think it was the last episode of the episode before that. Um, and they were discussing about, they love the Amazon Echo and it, but it's centrally located. It's in a particular room, usually the mm -hmm. kitchen. Um, which doesn't do you a whole lot of use if, say, you're in the bedroom and you want to, say, turn off the outside lights. So the suggestion on those podcast on that particular podcast was uh, if the Amazon Echo functionality, which they have likened to the Star Trek computer, had a way to be extended into every room via very cheap voice recognition. Voice recognition relay devices. Mm -hmm. um, it would have significant value. But beyond that, you know, you'd use your cell phone. You wouldn't say, hey, I could, you know, turn off that outside light or cause this particular functionality to happen over my phone. No, wait, let me go to the kitchen and tell my Echo to do something. Yeah, so you, you were saying if you had Echoes in every room of the house, it might be different. You wouldn't do that. It's too expensive. You say that, but but all the functions that you have on a uh, on a smartwatch, you have on a phone, but people still buy smartwatches. Uh, accessory versus actual device. You don't have smartwatches in every room. You actually carry it with you. I mean, I debate the reasonable... Um, Debate how reasonable a smartwatch purchases all you want, but I mean, and I don't own one, but you know, I don't think anyone is going to be okay. Sorry, I don't think any reasonable consumer is going to be buying Amazon Echoes and putting them in every room. Yes, I, I, I don't make that case. I'm just thinking, but five and ten years from now, surely that technology is going to be widely available. Yes, and and we we may very easily have it in every room of the house. Well, and, and again, pairing off of the discussion on tested, 
we will have the Star Trek computer. Yeah. Which is you walk around your house and, you know, through a combination of pre-programmed behaviors and voice commands, you will be turning things on and off. And I also think it'll be pretty cheap. But, yeah, it's cool. I haven't tried it yet. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's... It's a horrible review. I have the ability to do it, and I'm just too lazy and busy to actually try it. <laughs> well, that just an indication that you've got uh, some other more important things to do with your spare time. A spare time slash work. Too much <laughs> <Right>. work. <laughs> too much actual engineering to do this fake engineering. Right. And too much time monitoring the temperature in my house. <laughs> Right. Well, what do you think, guys? Is that uh, that enough coverage of the home automation world? That works for me. I learned a few things. Seriously, I need the vendors to choose a standard Zigbee or Z-Wave. I don't care. Just choose one. <laughs> well, perhaps one or more of our listeners has some uh, insight and background in this area. And if you do, feel free to uh, get a hold of us. Again, you can go to the uh, our website at uh, theengineeringcommons.com and there's a contact page send us an email and and uh, let us know what we have right or wrong or uh, maybe you even want to come on the show and uh, straighten us out would be okay with that as well i can see this being a correct there be a correction episodes for this one <laughs> <laughs> episode 91a oops <laughs> oops all right well we'll uh, we'll consider this episode done and uh We'll see our listeners again, or I guess we'll visit with our listeners again in uh, in a couple of weeks. Talk to you guys later. Bye. See you guys. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson.